Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today it's South Australia's turn for lockdown hell. For at least six days, maybe more. We shall soon see. So we'll be crossing live to South Australia to discuss that. And we'll also be taking a look at the big issue on both the left and the right in politics this week, which is the uh, partial success of Kevin Rudd's campaign against the Murdoch press in the form of a yet another Senate inquiry into media. Uh, joining me to discuss that is, of course, uh, Dr Chris Berg, who's a veteran of media inquiries over a long period of time. <laughs> I, bet, I mean, it's so nice to be in the safe space of media inquiries and media diversity on um, inspections but yes yeah, give you a great to be aboard Scott. uh great to um uh, and give you a chance to plug some of your books on this very issue and uh, uh the, yeah. including privatize the abc yeah. with doc, uh, with professor sinclair davidson uh chris berg joins us from rmit university also an adjunct fellow at the ipa which is bringing this show to you if you're not already a member please do join or donate and uh, uh coming off the long run at the ipa today is our very own director of research Daniel Wild, welcome, Daniel. G'day, Scott. G'day, Chris. Great to have you uh, joining us. Uh, as I say, uh, from South Australia, um, you've been a regular uh, guest. I'm looking forward over the uh, the past couple of months, and who knew that suddenly that would be the epicenter of the coronavirus story in Australia? No, indeed, it's um, it's shifted very, very quickly as we'll get into. Yeah. So. Uh, a lot of confusion here at the moment, so very interesting topic of discussion. Yes, and uh, as we've uh, been tracking this issue on the uh, um, on the podcast, the personal definitely is is political. We've all had our own experiences of living with uh, lockdowns, as well as considering the uh, the public policy implications of all that, as we shall do. Uh, and of course, later in the show, we'll have our our books and culture segment as well. And um, uh, and then Dan has to rush off to a media interview, and I, I suspect I have some idea what he what he'll be talking about today. But um, uh, Chris Berg, aforementioned veteran of media inquiries, what is going on? Uh, sure. So should we start with Adelaide first? Um, we'll we'll ah, stick yes, with the coronavirus. Yeah, one at a one at a time. <laughs> one at a time. One at a time, Scott. Um, don't cross the streams. Um, so let's talk about uh, South Australia. So um, yesterday it was announced that there will be a six-day lockdown. This is an extraordinarily harsh lockdown, um, harsher, in, in, I would say qualitatively quite uh, quite a lot harsher than what we experienced in Melbourne. Um, not only are there the usual things, like you can't leave home for anything but essential reasons, you um, can't attend anything but essential employment. So that's um, things like supermarkets, um, the fire service, all that sort of stuff. But you can't leave your home at all, um, including a prohibition on out-of-home exercise. So you can't exercise out of the home. Um, uh, you can't walk the dog. They've shut down takeaway, restaurants for takeaway as well, which as listeners may remember was one of the New Zealand policies but was not implemented in um in melbourne and another one that really struck me was there's no moving between homes for joint custody arrangements so the statement is if you've got a joint custody arrangement with children between two different parents you just have to pick one and and stick with that so this is um an extraordinarily harsh lockdown it's stated to be for six days. Dan, you mentioned that there was a lot of 
confusion. Where do you think we go from here? What's going to happen at the end of these six brutal lockdown days? Yeah, Chris, a couple of things. Uh, the mood here is one of, as I say, confusion, I think frustration and concern. So just for context, it was only announced uh, at something around 1 or 2 p.m. yesterday that at midnight or from midnight, these restrictions would come in. So uh, it's very difficult for people to get their affairs in order in a number of hours. So the restrictions are basically wherever you are or wherever you were at 12.01 this morning, uh, was where you had to stay for the next six days. So people are just driving. It was the, the traffic was crazy. People driving all over the place to actually get to their primary residence. Um, and as you can imagine, people going to the shops, getting their affairs and orders, dealing with their animals, their children. Um, it's just uh, the rapid nature of it and how sudden it was uh, has, uh, I think, led to a culture and a state of confusion. Particularly given that Stephen Marshall only a couple of days ago indicated that he was going to adopt the New South Wales approach. He actually said we can't lock down every time there's an outbreak, which is exactly the New South Wales model of having sort of a more risk-based targeted approach to local clusters. But then he's gone full 180 and adopted the, um, the Victorian model uh, times 10. You know, as you correctly identified, Chris, there are many components to this lockdown that go much further um, to what happened, well, I should say, in metropolitan Melbourne uh, rather than the greater Victoria um, area, but nonetheless, um, very significant um, draconian measures in place. Now, I believe that this six-day lockdown is designed for the authorities to get a better handle on um, the extent to which this has already spread. Um, I read this as panic. I read this as the authorities don't really know um, what is going on and they're deeply, deeply worried about how far this virus has already spread. Very, very few people think this will last only six days. I think six days is to gauge how many people have the virus? And then I don't think there there is a not insignificant chance that um, they'll find out however many people have the virus and then the lockdown will continue um, thereafter to stop it spreading um, even further. There's a weird thing. So the six days is very peculiar. Um, uh, and I don't want to get too wonky because it's actually a really, really hard thing and it's it's got extraordinary consequences for your liberty. But we should talk a little bit about this idea that it's a six day to stop the spread claim, um, which is uh, unique. I mean, in Victoria, of course, we're used to 14-day cycles or 28-day cycles. Um, and I haven't seen really any information that suggests that the modern understanding or contemporary understanding of COVID is that it's only got a um, incubation cycle of six days. Why do, you think, uh, why do you think they chose six days? Is that part of just this political gamesmanship that the public health community have been doing? Or do you think yeah. Do you, do you believe there's something epidemiological there? Look, you hit on a very important point. Um, I would say six is less than seven. Uh, it's less than a week. <laughs> this isn't even a week, not even a week, right? So that's that's my opinion of why I don't think it's public health. Uh, why six, not seven? Why not five days? You know, this is this is gets to a bigger issue, which is how many of these provisions are actually based on epidemiological advice. Um, why is it that you can't go outside by yourself with a mask on to exercise for an hour? You know, that doesn't appear to be based on any public health advice. Um, I would see this as mostly, as in Victoria, a mechanism to allow for, quote-unquote, the easier policing of people's movements, uh, which is the exact opposite of what the presupposition should be in a liberal society. Um, people should not be assumed to uh, be breaking the law 
uh, until they have been proven to have done so. So yeah, these yeah. measures uh, are mostly designed for policing and I would argue for PR uh, rather than public health. Because in the same way that the curfew, we I think we discovered quite clearly that the curfew was entirely designed so that the police understood that if you were out and about after curfew, then you were probably breaking the law in South Australia, or certainly Adelaide. If you're outside at all, then then you're sort of, you. we can assume that you are breaking the law or you'd have to have a valid reason why not. I mean, so uh, as you point out, that's just the most possibly illiberal thing you can possibly imagine where you're assumed to be breaking the law and um, uh, as opposed to, you know, you've proven innocent otherwise. Yeah, look, um, the, 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 the other aspect of this, and we'll keep talking about, um, you know, the unnecessary restrictions on civil liberties. There, there, uh, there's always an arguable case for some uh, restrictions uh, in some circumstances. I'm not going to make them, but somebody can. But um, uh, the other thing is just the uh, government incompetence i mean this this as as you said chris you know we we they were talking about one strategy and now they've flipped to another like if there was anything you were going to war game uh as a government and we have this you know array of bureaucrats in here and and uh, the other thing dan's talked about the impact on uh, or for example i should say um dan's talked about the impact on uh people's lives uh but i also was deeply concerned when i heard the police commissioner, not the premier, the police commissioner announcing the restrictions on business. Uh, you know, all construction sites to stop work as from as from midnight. You know, all manufacturing facilities other than essential facilities to close from midnight. And I know from the experience in Victoria that, it, you know, it took them weeks to figure out what that meant. And of course, um, you know, there are safety implications. Um, you know, factories that run uh, you know, Monday to Friday, and you announce on a Sunday that uh, they're just not going to operate. Well, who knows what kind of, you know, chemicals and, and all sorts of things are involved, you know, concrete pours um, uh, for construction sites, um, sites that aren't, aren't sealed, you know, who knows? And, and it just looks like none of this would have been thought about. I, I, I pity the business uh, people of uh, South Australia um, who haven't had a great run anyway, um, are trying to deal with this because I suspect they won't be able to get it if the experience of Victoria is anything to go by, they won't be able to get a straight out answer out of anybody uh, for this entire six-day period at least. Yeah, no, that's right. And I'll just, I'll just elaborate on that point as well, Scott. It's also the small businesses. So I just feel so much for if you're a small business selling perishable items. You know, some people say, oh, it's only six days. It's not a big deal. But six days that's thousands of dollars of perishable items in the bin. Like you can't hold on to them, right? So they've borne the, they've, they've incurred the cost. They can't get the cash for it. It's in the bin. And they're being forced to wear the cost of these lockdowns. And I think one of the main concerns I've had and that we've discussed a lot at the IPA um, since March and April has been those who can least afford it are being forced to incur the greatest costs. You know, it's self-employed people that are working on contract work. So they don't have they can't just take leave or sick leave. They're not, you know, they're not getting job keeper. They're not getting job seeker. They're just having to sit down at home and not get cash. It's small business owners um, that are selling perishable items that re rely on cash flow rather than capital to keep going. Six days is a long time, particularly when you've already had lockdowns throughout the year. You know, if this was just six, the first lockdown of six days, well, you know, that's one thing. But a lot of businesses have already been wiped out. We know about forty-five thousand South Australians lost their jobs because of the first lockdown. A lot of businesses closed. 
Um, this six days itself will push a lot of businesses and jobs over. Um, and that's assuming it's only six days. It could go for much longer. And um, this is an issue where I just don't think a lot of the public health bureaucrats and politicians know how this affects the lived experiences of the average person. And that's why they're so wildly disproportionate in their response. And so- can, I ask a, can, can I ask a question, Dan? To what extent, and this is this is just my Melbourne bias showing because we've been, we've been basically shut down working from home for um, the better part of 2020. Um, to what extent was this suddenly large organisations sending um, large numbers of people home or has South Australia been in a semi-normal, semi-normal status quo operation or is this how sharp is this change that's, that's oh, what I'm extraordinary to ask. extraordinary um it's been basically normal here for three or four months um hmm. some of the big corporates i know uh i won't name any uh, but i know a lot of you know people who work at some big corporates here they've been working from home um just as a precautionary type measure but by and large things have been normal um pretty much for three or four months so to go from normal for three or four months uh looking at bewilderment at what's been happening in melbourne and then to have a bit of an outbreak and the premier says look this is in control don't worry about it and then basically a day or two later to be locked up for six days in the most draconian the most draconian way um is a deep shock and i think this has said made people very worried about what is actually going on. You, know, you don't have this kind of turnaround if there's no, um, if, if everything's in control, right, and they know where the cases are, you don't need this kind of lockdown. So people are very concerned. Yeah, yeah. and I still I want to harp on the theme of, of government incompetence because uh, this is, after all, uh, the root cause is a hotel quarantine outbreak. And um, uh, it may well be that uh, that's a risk uh, that you can reduce to zero. Uh, there's at least one security firm uh, involved in the Victorian experience that claims that it's never had um, any incidents of um, coronavirus emerging from one of its facilities, for instance. So, But even if it's a non-zero risk, uh, it's not like this is an unanticipated risk. I, I just find it remarkable that we've been sent into a panic because of a failure mode that we've already had a public inquiry on in Victoria over the course of six months has no one been paying attention. I used to work in them, you know, in in mining industries and and gas industries, and whenever there was a safety incident, you know, uh, uh, the relevant professional bodies would send uh, a note around, and it would go around the world to say, you know, this happened in such and such a place. If you operate this kind of a facility, you need to take, you know, be aware of the failure mode here. <laughs> Is, do, do these things stop at the South Australian border? Also, have they have they paid no attention at all to what's been happening in Victoria? So again, it's this sense of shock at something that almost um, uh, should have just been completely. Uh, anticipated and done, um, you know, dummy exercises and all this kind of thing, and um, and uh, yeah, so outraged. Yeah. No, no, there there was a shocker of a quote um, from I think it was Stephen Marshall yesterday saying that now we, or sorry, I'll, I'll give him a fair quote. We have to invest very heavily in contact tracing and testing capability. Now, what on earth have has the South Australian B- government been doing during? 2020. I, I, I think by this stage, and how often do we have to say this, Scott, but by this stage, any government that is incapable of dealing with an outbreak of this nature 
is is manifestly incompetent and has let down its the citizens it's there to protect it cannot play it both ways it cannot claim to be um uh, to be defending the health of the citizens and pulling out all stops while simultaneously saying that it is underinvested in hospital capacity or contact tracing or testing capacity or what have you. I, th I think the the list of government failures here and the things that we should be angry about is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. especially and when uh, Stephen Marshall, as, as you said, did say that he expected to follow a New South Wales model, which is precisely investing in those things so that you can tactically deal with small outbreaks and contain them without shutting the economy down. Yeah. And just, just to add to that, one thing that Stephen Marshall actually said around about a week ago is he actually blamed regular South Australians for this. He says, I think some people have been getting complacent, right? But the only, like you say, it's, it's, it's the classic kind of deflection um, strategy, which is, no, you're the one, well, your government has been the one that's been complacent, not, not regular South Australians. And that, to me, is another sign of panic, like you're blaming other people um, uh, to divert attention away from the, the, the manifest, as you said, Chris, manifestly incompetent um, systems of the South Australian government. I mean, what have they been doing for three or four months? It just beggars belief that you look at Victoria, what has happened there, you've had so much time to invest in anything that you need to get on top of this and they haven't done it. And then blaming regular people, just as Daniel Andrews did in Victoria, I think is a sign of desperation. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot at stake here. So I was appalled by Mark McGowan, the um, Premier of Western Australia. Uh, I mean, been appalled enough that, you know, they'd been just willing to um, roll up the shutters and, and essentially sit behind um, uh, the borders, um, something that is certainly possible in a state like Western Australia, um, which, you know, uh, has the benefits of geographic isolation. Um, they're not taking any of the load really for... Uh, returning Australians in terms of quarantine, uh, but to, to then take pot shots and, and say that um, you know the the uh, model of the New South Wales government uh, is um, uh, should not be followed. There's there's no uh, alternative but to uh, shut down the borders and and uh, pursue eradication when he's when he's never had to face the issues that Victoria and, and New South Wales faced. I, I I just thought that was disgusting and and terrible public policy. Just to uh, not only um, uh, refuse to be part of the federation, if you like, but not even to acknowledge that there are um, uh, real reasons for the strategic choices made by New South Wales in particular. It's interesting to think about this in the context of where we stand globally. Um, so in the United Kingdom, many of the claims made for an enhanced lockdown now are looking at the vaccine, which is really excitingly coming, it looks pretty soon. And in fact, there may be vaccine available availability in the next few weeks or well before the end of the year, um, and certainly widespread distribution in the early new year. Um, and a lot of people in the United Kingdom say, well, we, we just got to lock down until we're at that position. So, you know, just get over this hump, get through um, December, January, February, and then we'll be in a good position to open up. It seems like, of course, Australia is in a totally different situation. Um, because in Victoria, we're functionally at elimination. Um, uh, in Queensland, obviously, we thought in South Australia, in Western Australia, in Tasmania, um, you could make an argument in New South Wales as well, that our, our national goal is unambiguously elimination. Damn everything else, 
ignore the vaccine. We are eliminating long before a vaccine is available. Dan, is that is that your read of where we are at the moment, right or wrong? Or yes, no, exactly. It's been a elimination strategy for some time, despite what political leaders have been telling us. They have been in practice pursuing an elimination strategy, other than perhaps New South Wales. Um, and so the issue is that an elimination strategy by its very essence necessitates lockdowns in response to localised low-risk outbreaks. You know, that is the, that's sort of the inbuilt institutional logic of having an elimination strategy, and that's the entire problem. And the broader issue that we have is it's been... The, ex, the expectation has been set up amongst the public that any number of cases is a failure. You know, if you have two cases, you've failed. Well, two cases is not a bad outcome. You know, when you, you go through some of the international examples that you did then, Chris, two, three, four cases, 100 cases, 200 cases, provided that you know, broadly speaking, where they are, if you've got contact tracing, it, sh- it shouldn't be a, a cause for concern. But- and and we, will, we will feel that in Melbourne, right? So we're, we're now at, I think today is 20 days of zero cases. There will be one case. It will happen soon. And we will all feel devastated, which is, which is obviously, obviously madness. Um, given that, you know, uh, quite apart from look at the rest of the world, isn't that different. But a small number of cases is the sort of thing that we have to learn to expect, again, well into 2021, well into 2022, and probably forever. This is not a virus that is going to be eliminated from the world, and eventually we will have to open ourselves back up. This is, by the way, um, catastrophic for those who've been uh, hoping for a pathway to return uh, Australians from overseas who've been desperately trying to get back all year. Very, very small numbers of um, uh, are trickling back and indeed most of them through New South Wales. So that the headline numbers in New South Wales are higher than what, what's real because many of the cases identified are indeed inside quarantine. Uh, that's sort of the point uh, of returning travellers. Um, but I imagine that this will, this will set off another wave of, of panic and another um, another refusal by the McGowans, the Palaszczuk's and, and so on to actually share the load of hotel quarantine. Of course, there's, there's no opportunity to return uh, via Victoria at the moment, uh, at least until the hotel quarantine inquiry hands down its its report, uh, which I, I think will be in a couple of weeks' time. So, uh, yes, that, that, that problem uh, will remain unresolved for some period of time. I do want to make... A, we should move on to the next topic, Scott, but I do want to make a point here because I do think that there's a really substantial failure of the federal government that is being um, less talked about than it should be because we are this far into the pandemic. At this, We are a national economy. Um, we all have relationships across state borders. The fact that the contact tracing system is only a state-based system, or at least there's no clear way that they can confidently contact trace across state borders, I think that this is a really clear failure of federalism. And I think we should all be very embarrassed by the scenes that we saw of the um, plane that flew, I think it was Adelaide to Perth, suddenly getting put into suddenly getting put into lockdown um, I think that was a that that is a a really substantial failure of the Commonwealth here um, and I suspect that when we you know when we do the wash-up of COVID we will be bitterly disappointed by by what the Commonwealth government has done 
even if you don't agree with that, and I, I think it's a, I think it is damning, but even if you don't agree with that, then do you remember, do you remember the conversations, Scott, we had about COVID safe app? Mm. Do you remember that app that we were all encouraged to do? Turns out it is, it has been a absolute wash. It has been an absolute waste of time. There is a role that the Commonwealth government should have played and they have failed to play it. Yeah. So the, uh, that's been limited to, uh, they've sent Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, in to essentially audit the the, uh, the various states. I don't know how much time he's spent in South Australia. I suspect most of it was in Victoria. Um, uh, they, as you know, in Victoria, uh, to the extent that after five months of denial, they finally admitted that their paper and fax machine-based system maybe could do with some improvements. And then miraculously, within a month, uh, they, the Dan Andrews announced that it was now Australia's best contact tracing system. Well, the, well that has been directly contradicted by, by Finkel. Um, uh, the Financial Review's uh, done some excellent coverage of this, and I think uh, Phil Curry, incidentally, has had some great uh, commentary around this, um, that it's clearly not the case. And one of the reasons, and uh, I've actually been speaking to the great Matthew Lesh, uh, adjunct uh, fellow of the IPA about this, he is a great... Uh, interest in in digital government and and one of the things of course is you can't just miraculously conjure up a system from scratch if you are completely ignorant of um, uh, the digital world of the possibilities of technology you haven't invested in uh, things like um, uh, as New South Wales has actually done in terms of using um, uh, CRM systems customer management systems uh, to provide services to your people. If you haven't done that kind of work initially, you then have nothing to build on when it comes to something like contact tracing. So uh, they, they've sent Finkel in, but uh, I take your point, Chris. Uh, was, that was that enough? No, it's not enough. And Matthew Lesh has been um, wanting to come on this podcast again. We've had him on once. Uh, he made me wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning. I know he's listening to this podcast now. He made me wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning to speak at a thing of his in London. So we're gonna we're gonna do it on our time, Scott. We're yeah, yeah. We'll get him on and we'll talk about that precise issue. So how can we <laughs> weaponize um, uh, the chief scientist report and um, actually get some change? Great. Now, Chris, we do have one other topic. Can you tell us what it we is? We do. We do have one other topic. So, Kevin Rudd. Do you remember Kevin Rudd? He's the Prime Minister at one stage. Kevin Rudd has launched a petition. A, in, he launched it in October. Now has 500,000 signatories um, through the Australian Parliament um, into calling for a royal commission into um, News Corporation. I'm going to quote a bit from it, Scott, because I think you get a good vibe. So I, I, I've, I've heard of this in the news until I was really doing the research of this episode. I don't think I got, got the vibe of the thing. We are especially concerned that Australia's print media is overwhelmingly controlled by News Corporation, founded by Fox News billionaire Rupert Murdoch, with around two-thirds of daily newspaper readership. I mean, people in Australia might be aware that Rupert Murdoch is known for more than Fox News, particularly in Australia, where he was, uh, where he was born. I continue. This power is routinely used to attack opponents in business and politics by melding editorial voice with news reporting. Australians hold, who hold contrary views have felt intimidated into silence. These facts chill free speech and undermine public debate. Powerful monopolies are also emerging online, including Facebook and Google. And we'll just leave that there. This is a, um, a real kitchen sink of complaints about, um, 
uh, about News Limited. It's the sort of thing that we've been listening to for decades in this country. Um, there is a um, conservative-leaning newspaper organization in the world, and apparently that is a major public policy problem. Um, uh, it has nonetheless resulted in the announcement of a Senate inquiry into media diversity that is um, intended to examine the dominance of news called Australia and its impact on democracy. Um, Dan, why do we have inquiries into private media organisations? Very good question, Chris. Um, I think it's very... It's a leading question. It's a leading question. Just a fraction, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, just to pick up on what you're saying, I think it's deeply concerning to have a former Prime Minister, well, actually two, I mean... Two former, right, yeah. ...has been uh, joining in on this as well, to be uh, targeting one particular news organisation because they have a grievance with it for one reason or another. But I, I think it's an example of... Uh, they're, they're up... They're, basically spinning the dummy that they lost, you know, and they blame it on Murdoch or they blame it on News Corp. It's just the people didn't want you to be prime minister anymore. Um, so there is that component of it. But in a liberal democratic society, you should not have the government investigating private media organisations. And also the role of the ABC in this is deeply concerning. The ABC, of course, has been um, running the line about Murdoch influence. Now, that's a concern because the ABC is a publicly funded, you know, taxpayer funded organisation that should not be using those taxpayer funds to try and run out a run out a competitor of its market. So I think it raises a whole range of issues that we've talked about a lot, whether it's the ABC, media regulation, um, the nature of our democracy, freedom of speech. So I think it's deeply concerning this set of inquiries even taking place. Yeah, because if you look at both the, uh, the petition and also now the... Um uh, the Senate inquiry, which has been uh, approved on a motion from Green Senator uh, Han Hanson Young, uh, the it's not just about the Murdoch Empire. Uh, supposedly, it's not just about that. So it's also about Facebook and Google. For yeah, some reason. it's about Facebook and Google, and and at one and one point it even talks about we're concerned about the emerging business models. And we've talked about it on the program. Uh, the old business models have collapsed and different business models are emerging. That is true and it has some implications. Uh, they, they're, they're concerned um, about regional media. They're, they're, they're concerned about um, uh, Nine and Fairfax as well. But let there be mo no mistake that the coverage of it reveals what is the true agenda. It really is about Murdoch and it is fascinating. And, 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 and there's, I mean, we shouldn't descend to cheap shots, but... Uh, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. Um, so much of this is is personal, um, and uh, and just to stick with Rudd for a moment, um, uh, Chris. I, I this I'm holding up now a 2012 edition of the IPA Review, um, which you were editing at the time, which is called Why the Press really, Gallery. Really, the IPA Review's best years, I, I, I say. But you know, yeah, why others the, may have another view. I don't know. Why the press cap? No, that's right. No, I think it's only getting better and better myself. <laughs> Who would have thought a three-column layout would ever work? Um, why the press gallery has failed us? And and this was precisely on the issue that the press did not report on what kind of a prime minister Kevin Rudd actually was um, until the videos yes. emerged of him, you know, abusing staff and and uh, and the stories finally that all emerged after he was bounced by his own colleagues. The reasons why Australia was so deeply, deeply shocked and surprised 
that Rudd had been bounced by his own caucus was that no one had ever reported on what he was actually like as a leader of that party. And um, and so it, it's and and now he's he's retroactively decided that somehow Murdoch had it in for him. In fact, he got a dream run. He got a dream run from the Murdoch press and all of the press all the way into the election that delivered him into the lodge, um, and for the entire period of his prime ministership. Um, but definitely one of those guys who what is it? You know, the the the, the more you get to know them, the less the less you like them. <laughs> that was that was one of the most extraordinary. So, so I know we don't do ad hominem on this show, Chris, but no. but, but that, that was one of the most extraordinary things about the Rudd loss: the sudden barrage of, of anecdotes, of stories, the the sheer column inches. Oh, oh, that Kevin Rudd actually he was a terrible leader. Now I I'm I'm actually a little more skeptical. Uh, I don't know. I've always been let's say Rudd curious in my career, um, <laughs> I, I, and I've always been a bit skeptical of some of those stories because they're a bit sort of just so after the election oh you know you, you know how everybody you know the population seemed to like kevin rudd turns out he was a terrible guy and you're like thanks julia gillard no i appreciate you <laughs> this. um because because everybody plays all sides right and everybody's got their favored um journalists and they're all leaking each other's most embarrassing stories whenever it's convenient um but i think there's a more broad thing i i, I don't think that and and listeners will will know that I don't think that News Limited is entirely, News Corporation is entirely innocent here. And the really um, ironic thing as part of this complaint is the complaint about Facebook and Google, who are, of course, in a pitched battle to vote, to try to use the regulatory system to crack, uh, News Limited is trying to use the regulatory system to crack down on Facebook and Google because they view each other as competitors. So not monopolies, but they view each other as competitors in the advertising market. Now, to my mind, that tells us that we've actually got a very disrupted, but actually very vibrant media advertising ecosystem that has its problems. And many of those problems are due to regulatory constraints. But um, we do have actually a very exciting media landscape at no time in history has this argument about a single media mogul made less sense? I can understand if you read it in the 1950s or even the 1970s. When, 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 news, when, when newspapers really could influence elections. Like one of the most bizarre things about Rudd's complaint is, uh, you know, uh, Murdoch's attempt to uh, influence, I think there's some 16 out of the last 18 elections or something like that. Well, he's not doing a very good job of it, I would say. Which is also, which is also wildly overstated. And when, when they make these claims that it's the sun what did it, you know, the sun never did it, right? They always jump aboard whatever the, um, the vibe, they want to look like they're on the winning team. Including what's playing out in the US at the moment, Dan. Uh, where yeah, we've, yeah. where we've seen Fox News um, uh, really in trouble with its own with its own audience. It's yeah, it's fascinating. I, Chris makes an important point. I see certainly tabloid newspapers and also um, sort of talkback radio as primarily reflecting opinions. I think they do lead a bit, and I think there are circumstances in which they can have a big impact when they really choose to focus on a particular topic. But 80, 90 percent of the coverage, I think, is um, reflecting the basic, well, what they judge to be the basic view of their readership or their listenership or their viewership, which makes complete sense. They're offering a service, they're offering a product. And as you say, Scott, you don't want to go at war with your own customers. You might be able to lead them to something a bit different, like um, 
just to take a random example, it might be a different product. They change the, uh, like Coca-Cola might change the bottle or they might change the ingredient. You can sort of lead your customers to something, but you don't want to have too drastic attack on them. And that's exactly what's happened, as you say, with Fox News. And Fox News is split. Uh, if you look at uh, some of the personalities like Tucker Carlson, they've been very much uh, in the Trump camp. And when I say Trump camp, I really mean the Trump support. It's not really about Trump the person, it's about the base. And there's a big overlap between Trump's voting base, um, Fox News uh, viewership base, and talk like Rush Limbaugh's listenership base. There is a sort of a Venn diagram and there's a lot of overlap between this. So for uh, a number of years, they're all sort of singing from the same um, songbook that obviously split now um, after the 2020 election and Fox News ratings have gone down, uh, at least on their daytime programming. So it is very interesting and that would be a piece of evidence, although I accept the American market is much different to the Australian market, but that's a piece of evidence to suggest that they're not having as much influence as you might think on people's thoughts. They're, I think, giving an articulation. So a lot of people have the, you know, most people that are engaged in these kind of formats, they're not um, reading deeply. You know, they have jobs, they have lives, they're not reading deeply on everything every day, but they have general views and intuitions and feelings and thoughts. The role of the media is often to put it in a framework that make, and a narrative that makes sense to the average person. Um, and then when that narrative departs, from what the average person that's reading or engaging in these news formats thinks, they will find something else. And that's exactly what's happening. And, and I think we should not underestimate, it's also entertainment. Um, and a lot of what um, the media critics dislike about something like Fox or a tabloid like the Herald Sun is that mixture of, um, so, so they describe it as, as I just pull it up again, they describe it as blending editorial opinion with news reporting. To my mind, that's making an entertaining product out of news reporting. There is no ideal world where people just want to consume um, blank sheets of objective news. Ah. People want there to be a spin, a story, a narrative, something entertaining but, but, about but, it. And but, I really, but Chris, doesn't this go to the heart it. of your whole critique? Um, and again, I'll... Um, uh, I'll bowl up an easy one for you because this is the whole thing about this. If you read these petition and the Senate inquiry, these are all things that anyone with a heart would be concerned about. You know, you know, for with a blank sheet of paper, why wouldn't you be concerned about media diversity? Sounds like a good thing. Why wouldn't you be concerned about the state of regional newspapers? That's important. Communities are important. So you hear all these good things. But the whole thing is framed on the basis that, which is the opposite of what you're saying, is that before Murdoch came along, media was all about public interest, unbiased, fact-based reporting. You know, there was some nirvana which has been disrupted by this serpent who came in. And when you're starting from that assumption and everything's framed about that, well, then we're back in the land of Finkelstein, aren't we? We're, we're back in the uh, media inquiry commissioned by, uh, I think, under Stephen Conroy, again, who's on the cover of this IPA review. And we know where that leads, or you know where that leads, at least, Chris. I do. So, I, I, as you said, I, I've been involved in a lot of these conversations for a, a very long time. In fact, the first time I appeared in front of a parliamentary committee was all the way back in 2006 on a media diversity inquiry as well. And it has always struck me that the mixture of concerns around this, the, the idea that we're blending editorial with news, 
Um, and then simultaneously, we're concerned that um, there's too much concentration. These, to, uh, it's the complete opposite of my read of what's happened. What I think has happened over the course of the last couple of decades is that there's been much more competition in the media. It has gotten more diverse, or at least more economically diverse. And that has meant that um, newspapers, television stations, uh, radio programs, podcasts have had to chase um, different sets of readers, provide more niche products that speak to different audiences. Now, I think that's great, but it's also led to this blend of editorial and news and all that sort of thing as we try to chase niche populations further and further. And now that's not that's not weird, right? And and any listener to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast is familiar with this dynamic that we are, you know, that this is a very free market um, group of people and we're giving a very specific take on the news within a, an ideological construct. But that's good and that's exciting and that's media diversity in its truest sense. The thing that um, the left and the Labor Party have always wanted to do is to say, well, no, 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 that's that's all a sideshow. In fact, most people are just reading the Herald Sun and most of what's in the Herald Sun is being dictated by one New York-based billionaire. Now, I think that's nonsensical. I think it's as far away from a correct read of the empirical evidence around diversity as you can possibly get um, and it definitely leads to bad yeah, public and, policy. And, and, and it leads to, well, the public policy specifically that you saw in Finkelstein was, so the answers to this is to have uh, the Australian Communications and Media Authority sitting in judgment on whatever the Herald, yeah. uh, the Herald Sun writes or the Daily Telegraph writes, uh, to have uh, dollops of taxpayer funds uh, handed out for so-called public interest journalism and, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and so so we get, I mean, one of the Finkelstein recommendations was licensing media organisations. I've heard arguments to license journalists. I've heard um, th these these bizarre, um, to be fair, what they're trying to do is the impossible. They're trying to pretend that they're not against free speech. So they don't feel like they can shut these organisations down, but they just want to control them and regulate them. Now, that is, that is a task that is just, not possible in a free society. So I don't tend to get worried about these inquiries. I think they are laughable sideshows that cannot go anywhere because you just cannot do, you cannot achieve what they would like to do, which is to shut down whole organisations who have millions and millions of viewers or readers or listeners. What do you think, Dan? The, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions though, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. No, I, I think that's a pretty good observation. Um, one of the challenges is, you know, this, as, you, as you say, Chris, this idea that the news is being dictated by a billionaire from New York. I mean, there's a lot of editorial discretion that's devolved very deeply down um, into um, the relevant you know, Herald Sun and the other um, newspapers in question. And just on the Herald Sun, if you go and look at the coverage of the lockdowns in Victoria, it, it was by no means hostile to the Victorian government in the early days of it, even in the early days of the, of, of the second wave, it wasn't, you know, hostile. There weren't, you know, no fair reading would say that even if they had an anti-Labor government agenda that they were trying to bring down the Victorian Labor government. You know, there, there was uh, actually, I thought, this, 
I thought it was actually disappointing at the lack of diversity. You know, both the two major papers in Victoria, The Age and The Herald Sun, didn't have a significant amount of difference in their views on the lockdown in the early days. And I think Australians, and if I talk about Australia more generally, Australians were, I think, let down by a real lack of alternative views on how to handle um, the lockdown. It was always a broad agreement on the on the um, value of eradication. Now, there wasn't a genuine alternative put forward saying, hey, look, why don't we pursue this alternative risk-based strategy rather than an eradication strategy? So just on, the, just on that one particular policy issue, which has, of course, dominated discourse this year, I just find it hard to see how any fair reading could substantiate those claims. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. So um, I'm not worried that there's a left-wing newspaper and a right-wing newspaper. I'm not worried that maybe there are more right-wing TV stations or whatever. I don't, I'm much more worried about groupthink. I'm much more worried about the things that um, both sides agree on without having thought through carefully. I'm worried about the suppression of contrary voices. I'm worried about um, the, the inability of us to question certain dogmas. Now, I'm not that worried because there's the internet, right? And we can find anything we want on the internet fundamentally. Um, and so that's what makes me excited about media diversity rather than fearful for it. Exactly. Speaking of uh, diversity of opinion, we have come to that part of the program where we offer our opinions on what we've been reading, watching and listening to. And, and Dan, I'm conscious that you, you are off to a media engagement very shortly. Um, would you like to briefly outline what you've been uh, reading, watching or listening to recently? I'd love to. Yep, thanks, Scott. So I'm reading this book uh, here. Uh, it might look a bit... Oh, that's the wrong side. It's back, back to front. And so now it's upside down. down. Let's try that again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is on uh, Australian Prime Ministers and was well, called Australian Prime Ministers, edited by uh, Michelle Grattan. So make of that what you wish. But the reason I picked this book up is uh, reading David Kemp's third instalment of Democracy and Liberalism in Australia. Um, the third instalment is from about, is actually from 1900 to 1925. And I, thought, I found it pretty engaging and interesting. And what I realised is I actually don't know a lot about uh, the early prime ministers of Australia and I was a bit ashamed of that. So I picked this book up and it basically gives you an overview of the prime ministers, their lives and some of their main um, initiatives. It's not really heavy reading, but it does give you a nice overview. And just there's a lot of interesting parts to this, but just one that I thought was really interesting that stuck out to me was, and we're talking about diversity, how diverse the backgrounds were of a lot of politicians and prime ministers in the early days um, compared to now. So, you know, there's Joseph Lyons, who was a school teacher. There's Ben Chifley, who was, um, you know, an engine cleaner, a fireman and a train driver. Um, there was Andrew Fisher, who was in the coal mines and the coal pits. Um, and it just strikes me that today, there's just an abundance of, of like the professionalization of politics, as we all know, is not a new topic, but it does strike me that politics back in uh, at least in this period, was seen as something that you would do amongst many other things that you would do in your life. You would not be a politician forever. And even when you were a politician, you would be doing other things as well. And I think it gave members of parliament an opportunity to be more connected with the common person. And I talked a little bit earlier about how my concern with the South Australian lockdown is, well, many concerns, but one of them is the detachment of the elected officials from the lived experience of the average person. I just don't think they understand how their actions affect small business owners, how they affect the average person, how they affect people's plans in their lives. And I suspect if we had a more diverse background in terms of occupations, 
off people. We have more small business owners, more farmers, more miners, more teachers, more people with sort of real world experience that there would be more nuance to some of these policies because they'd be based on a better understanding of, of how people's lives are affected in a practical way. So it was very timely and interesting um, reading and it does make me lament, I think, a little bit that uh, the professionalisation of politics, I think, is one of the structural driving forces of a lot of the problems that we discuss um, on this podcast, but also at the IPA more generally. Thanks, Dan. That, um, uh, I have a much, much earlier edition of that book. Um, there's been a lot of prime ministers since I bought mine. Uh, <laughs> good for business for Michelle Gretton, I suppose. So, uh, But, uh, no, that's a, that's a great reflection on what, what that passing parade actually represents as politics changes. Um, Chris, how about you? So I've been watching uh, Stranger Things um, in, in, in part because I'm still reading the book or I've literally just finished the book that I discussed last week, which was a history of the Vikings. So um, in the midst of that, I've been watching Stranger Things, well, be well behind the zeitgeist on that. Obviously, very fashionable yes, to watch Stranger are. Things a couple of years ago. Um, I The reason I just thought I'd raise it is because if you haven't, watched it i had watched the first 20 minutes or something and i thought it was um a bit dull what i'm going to recommend to people is if they are into it, it becomes actually very surreal and absurd and um extreme and it leans into those extremities certainly in the second season and becomes very very entertaining as a result so for those who don't know it's basically a pastiche of 80s movies 80s themes you know, there's the sort of kids from ET. There's um, 80s style horror like The Thing. Um, it's a pastiche of all the ideas that you are more familiar with in 80s blockbusters or even um, some indie films. Video game arcades, very featured. Video very game prominent. arcades. So every 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 amusing cliche um, uh, that came from those, but done very very well and done in a high-quality uh, Netflix 2020-style pro uh, production. Stranger Things, it, it, it is entertaining. You are behind the zeitgeist, but it is it is a good show. Way behind the zeitgeist. Yeah. It's pretty embarrassing. And a, and a good one go. good one to watch with kids as well. Um, I've been watching uh, The Crown, the much-anticipated series of The Crown. Uh, only been able to catch uh, two episodes, uh, but all of my other reading has been for a course that I'm doing, and that would bore <laughs> listeners completely, I think. Uh, but the crown, crown has always been uh, both great to watch, slightly uh, annoying because of the uh, uh, the political agendas behind it, um, and these come to the fore even more so now because this is the series that introduces Margaret Thatcher, um, uh, played by Gillian Anderson, and uh, uh, the, the first episode, or the first two episodes. Um, highlight Thatcher, um, paint her in uh, not a, a great light, I would say, at least gives some voice to the things that are important to her. Um, it does highlight or play on, I guess, her resentment of, uh, you know, the high Tories, the nobility, the aristocracy, um, particularly as they represented the forces opposed to her within the Conservative Party, and indeed we see them, we see her defeating them uh, with a wide-ranging cabinet reshuffle. Um, but it, it's 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 got this sort of ambivalence about um, uh, the royal family and the aristocracy that runs through, I think it's run through the crown all the way through. Like it's it both. Um, uh, points out the flaws 
you know, the, the you know the lack of interest in ideas, the lack of education, the sort of reactionary nature of the nobility. Um, but in this, in order to set up the contrast with Thatcher, it's almost like you're just glorying in the royal family there for a while. They're just bouncing around Balmoral, shooting deer and playing silly g games and having their gin and tonics before dinner and uh, ordering servants around and tramping through mud and driving around in their Land Rovers. And, 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 and Thatcher becomes the odd one out, even though... She's the one who actually represents, you know, the great middle class of, of Britain. It was uh, so that this nobility, they looked down on grocers' daughters, just as Napoleon called the, the British or the English a nation of shopkeepers. Um, but my sympathies are with Thatcher. But isn't isn't that a critique of the crown in general? So yeah. the, and, and the issue with the crown is that everything is extremely low stakes. Um, it's, does this person feel like they're included enough in the family? Um, and you get this overwhelming impression. I may have said this when I talked about season two um, on this podcast, that they are a family tangentially connected to much more interesting things going on. And to the extent that the crown is ever interesting, it's because something much more important is happening that the prime minister informs them about <laughs> So the Suez Canal crisis, right? Or um, even uh, when it finally comes home, there's the energy crisis. Um, and, and finally, like, oh, my God, something in the world is happening that is affecting us. Us, we're the crown. Um, now, if you're, if you're a fervent monarchist, you might think that's a, that's a bug. Oh, sorry, a feature, not a bug. But <laughs> to my mind, it makes... Um, for not very engaging television. <laughs> yeah, you have to be interested. Uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens with the former episodes. And um, uh, on a future episode, I might return to it because we also had the assassination of um, Lord Mountbatten by the IRA. And I'm still not sure about how that played, but perhaps that's a discussion uh, for another day. Uh, again, very, very important things going on in Ireland that just... I are so superficially treated that, you know, I would just hate for anyone who doesn't know any of the background to be basing <laughs> their, their knowledge of, of, the, of, of, of the troubles on on watching an episode of The, of, of the Crown. But uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, he's had to depart for a media interview, but also uh, uh, thank you, Dan Wilde, for joining us today. Uh, big thanks to Josh in the control room. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs, so thank you IPA uh, for letting us uh, talk for nearly an hour about topics that interest us and hopefully you, the listener, if you're not already a member of the IPA, go to our website, see how you can get on board and if you are, thank you very much. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. <laughs>